Greetings and welcome to episode 35 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we're going to be talking about the Chinese borderlands, okay? Uh, we're going to be talking about the Chinese borderlands. Largely the framework that I've come up with here is we're going to talk about um, the first 50 years of the 20th century, all right? We're going to stop at 1949 with the conclusion of the Chinese Civil War, um, and we'll have a separate episode that will deal entirely with uh, communist uh, rule over their non-Han borderlands. Um, but of course, in order to talk about this first 50 years of the 20th century, we're going to be talking about uh, things that happened before the 20th century as well, because we haven't had episodes entirely dedicated to the political history of Mongolia, Tibet, or Xinjiang. Uh, what unites all of these areas together? Well, what unites them all together is that they are the only significant portions, all right, like province-level units, you know, areas of territory that are as big as a province might be, and in most instances, Mongolia, Tibet, and Xinjiang are far bigger than any province in the interior of China. But let's just say, you know, a huge clump of land um, at a, you know, generally at the size of a province, a little bit bigger, um, in which the overwhelming majority of the population was originally in the modern era, in the last couple hundred years, that population was overwhelmingly non-Han. Okay? They did not come from the Chinese cultural, uh, scriptural, Tradition. They may have had economic ties, they may have had religious ties with the Chinese heartland, um, but they have their own uh, written canon, their own religious canon, uh, separate uh, ideas about their cultural autonomy, their own separate origin myths and whatnot, okay? Uh, their own religious clergy who occupy positions of authority. Um, and that really don't owe their existence or their, their power necessarily to their interactions with the Chinese heartland. Okay, it's a very complex situation, but that's how I sort of link these three together. All right. There are other regions of China even today, particularly in the in the far southwest. If you travel through the provinces of Guizhou, of Yunnan, of Guangxi, uh, you will encounter many non-Han populations. What distinguishes these from, let's say, the Mongols, the Uyghurs, the Kazakhs, the Tibetans? Um, well, it's simple. Most of these people in the far southwest, even though they would not identify as Han, they would say, hey, I'm different from that guy. I'm not Chinese. Your state has come, and I don't recognize you as my state, my people. That's true. Uh, but these people didn't exist in large enough numbers and with a literate, uh, uh, literary canon, all right? Their own scriptures, their own books, their own literate priestly authorities, okay? Um, they didn't have all the institutional trappings of a state that in the modern era usually end up getting translated into nations, and thus the possibility to form your own state and separate from another state that previously ruled over you. Okay, uh, most of these people in the Southwest are in smaller numbers. They aren't as big of groups. They're intermixed with one with one another. The province of Yunnan, um, you know, depending on how you calculate it, you could say that there are hundreds of ethnic groups non-Han ethnic groups in Yunnan. Uh, we'll have a later lecture in which we'll talk about in the 1950s how there was an ethnic classification campaign that originally said settled on something like the 20-something ethnic groups in Yunnan alone. Still a very large number compared to the rest of the country. 
Okay, uh, but these people in the far southwest generally didn't represent to the Chinese. Remember, there's a history of China. Okay, my perspective usually is from the Chinese perspective here, even though we try to incorporate many other voices. Uh, these people in the southwest usually didn't represent a statist threat to the 20th century Chinese state. They didn't look down Mao Zedong, Chiang Kai-shek, Yuan Shikai. They didn't, they didn't look down at a place like Yunnan and say, oh my God, Yunnan's going to separate and create its own republic based on the ethnic group of the, the, the Yi people or the Miao people in Guangxi or Guizhou. These people weren't an institutional threat in that sense. They were intermixed with an, uh, uh, enough of other ethnic groups and with other Han that there wasn't an overwhelming majority of non-Han peoples who identified with one you know, cohesive cultural group to represent that sort of a secessionist threat. Okay? Um, in Mongolia, in Tibet, in Xinjiang, there absolutely was. Okay, but you're probably asking here before we get started, whoa, 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 Professor Jacobs, what about Manchuria and Taiwan? Aren't these peripheries as well that had tumultuous histories in the 20th century? Oh, yes, they are. And they're very important. Why don't they get on this list? Well, I'll tell you why they don't get on this list. Because before we even get into the 20th century, both Manchuria, that's the northeastern part of China today, which has been uh, uh, cut up into various different types of many different provincial units over the past 150 years, um, and then Taiwan, obviously, the island off the southeast coast of uh, Fujian province, um, both Manchuria and Taiwan, these regions were already Sinicized. They were populated by Han migrants prior to the modern era, like prior to the 20th century. So by the time you get into the 20th century, anyone who went to Manchuria or Taiwan, regardless of who's actually in control of, pol of the political situation, who's, who's actually ruling these regions, um, they would see mostly a Han-dominated society. Yes, there are Aborigines in the mountains of Taiwan, uh, but they are few in number, they are politically impotent, um, and economically not all that consequential. All right, most of Taiwan is dominated by the low-lying agricultural rice-growing plains of the Fujian migrants, who we would now identify as Han. Manchuria was the same way. Okay, Manchuria, in the late 19th century, when you have the growing threat from the overland Russian Empire, and then eventually the Japanese Empire as well, and just all the, all the foreign empires all encroaching on China's borders, um, the decision was made that uh, we should probably turn some of these uh, previously off-limits borderlands into more closely integrated, more closely Chinese lands. And so in the case of Manchuria, and then also to a lesser extent in Mongolia, uh, we're going to talk about that in a minute, in the case of Manchuria, uh, in the second half of the 19th century, the Qing court, the Manchu court, which saw Manchuria as their homeland, you know, they had romantic ideas, we came from this land, they had originally made Manchuria off-limits to Han migration. They said, no, Manchuria is not going to be allowed to, we're not going to open the floodgates of, of Han migration here. And they actually had that policy for all the borderlands. Officially on paper, Han migrants really generally weren't allowed to migrate to Mongolia, Xinjiang, Tibet, or Manchuria. I thought this is going to destabilize these regions um, to, to, to allow Han, poor Han, Han farmers to go into these regions and set up shop. It's going to lead to ethnic conflict, and that was prohibited. Manchuria was the first non-Han borderland where this restriction was lifted. Now, there are already Han migrants from the northern Chinese provinces who were illegally migrating to uh, the far northeast 
and cultivating new lands. That was already going on, probably since the 18th century. Uh, but in the late 19th century, the Qing court itself says, you know what, we need to lift the ban officially uh, because this is too risky. We can't have these lands that the foreigners are going to look at and they're going to say, oh, these lands aren't Chinese. Therefore, it's up for grabs. We can settle it. We can turn it into a Russian land. If the Russian settlers come in and settle in large enough numbers in Manchuria, then they'll have a pretext to say, hey, we can look out for the interest of our Russian citizens and now there's so many Russians that this should be a part of the Russian Empire. And so they officially encouraged millions of Han, poor, poor Han farmers from the northern provinces of China. They're, you know, Shandong, uh, Hebei, these provinces around Beijing, just to the south of Beijing, uh, Liaoning, northeast of Beijing, uh, to migrate up there. And they would give them perks, you know, uh, cheap land, no, no taxes for five years, we'll give you the seeds, whatever you need to start a modest farm. Okay, so by the time you get to the 20th century, the so-called Manchu homeland is already not really Manchu anymore, if it ever really was. Okay, and the Manchu court authorized this process. They consciously said, you know, in a strategic gambit, we need to uh, uh, signify the northeastern region. And this is when many of the parts of Manchuria were first turned into various provinces. Um, there was no single province of Manchuria. It was cut up into many different provinces, and those monikers have changed over the next hundred years. It's very confusing. Uh, today, there's, I think, three big provinces that make up Manchuria. Okay, but during the, for, much, for much of the 20th century, there were like eight or nine or ten. There was a lot of these tiny little ones cut in weird ways. Okay, so what about Taiwan then? Taiwan. Well, Taiwan, we know. Uh, we're going to have a whole episode on Taiwan, um, but sort of sum it up really briefly. Uh, Taiwan, uh, Fujian immigrants from the southeastern coast of mainland China uh, during the Ming Dynasty, late Ming Dynasty, 1600s and then early Qing Dynasty, basically the whole 17th and 18th century, uh, you begin to have this organic migration the, across the Taiwan Strait, across the water, in which the overpopulated regions of Fujian province are going to Taiwan and they are cultivating the lowlands. Taiwan actually has a large mountain range that cuts right through the middle of it and on the western uh, on the western side, this is where the Han migrants from Fujian would cultivate uh, rice paddies. Okay, so that's our, you know that's even further back in time than Manchuria. Uh, Taiwan has largely been Sinified. All right, and they, and the court goes even further in the 1880s. I believe it's 1884 or 1885. 1885, I believe, that the court finally decides, and we talked about this in the Japan versus China episode when we were talking about ja uh, Japanese interest in taking over peripheries of China, of the Qing Empire, um, they, they decided to turn Taiwan into a province on the same rationale that they turned much of Manchuria into, you know, provinces, just like the other 18 inner provinces in the Chinese heartland between, you know, the Yellow River and the Yangtze River region. And they said Taiwan's going to be a province as well. And <laughs> poor Taiwan lasts only 10 years. Uh, as a province of the Qing Empire before it's taken by uh, Japan after the Sino-Japanese War concludes in 1895. All right, but let's not get into Taiwan too much. We have a lot more. We have a whole, our next episode is going to be dedicated entirely to the history of Taiwan. Okay, now, so we sort of uh, pushed off, took care of Manchuria and Taiwan, pushed them off to the side here, uh, explained why they don't really fall into the rubric of our chi chi modern Chinese borderlands day. Okay, let's start with Mongolia. Mongolia is a very interesting case because Mongolia is the only significant territorial chunk of land 
that the modern Chinese state will lose. In the transition from the last imperial empire, the Qing dynasty, to the modern Chinese republics, the Republic of China first, and then the, the People's Republic of China after 1949, which is still around to today, Mongolia is the only landmass that will be gone. Bye-bye. They lose it. It's actually quite remarkable. Many historians look at this and they say, hey, so many other empires, the Ottoman Empire, for instance, many European empires, most European empires, all European empires lost an enormous amount of their pre-20th century empires over the course of the 20th century. Just think of how small the British, you know, state is today compared to what it was in the old days. Okay. Um, and somehow the Chinese empire, uh, all they lost was Mongolia. There's complex reasons for this. We're not going to go into it here. Um, I usually don't ascribe it to anything, any you know, innate genius or brilliant strategy the Chinese had. It was, it was the way great power politics works, a lot of accidents, a lot of unintended consequences. And in the end, all the other foreign great powers decided that, you know, generally speaking, we're not going to let any other power uh, take over a significant chunk of China's borderlands because that would destabilize the situation and everyone else would try to take something. And it's in all of our interest to keep China intact. Generally speaking, that was the foreign consensus on the Qing Empire. It's in all of our interest to keep the Qing Empire weak but intact. And the only time that this consensus, all right, one of only two times that this consensus was violated was when the Russians took over Outer Mongolia. Remember, during the Qing Dynasty, they referred to two parts of Mongolia. Outer Mongolia, which is basically today's Mongolian People's Republic. It's independent, okay? Um, and then there is Inner Mongolia, which again, through the 20th century, had many different provincial designations, was cut up into many different, many different pieces, but after 1949, the communists would again refer to it as Inner Mongolia. Okay? Um, now, how is the... Chinese Republic going to lose outer Mongolia? All right, a very fascinating question, uh, because as I said it's only one of two instances in which this foreign consensus will be violated. The other instance, can you guess? Japan with Manchuria. Japan will take over Manchuria and turn it into the puppet state of Manchukuo. The reason that we don't think about that one as often is because they eventually then lost it. <laughs> Just 13 years after they set up Manchukuo in 1932, they lose World War II and they have to give it back to China. If Japan didn't lose World War II, or if they had been able to negotiate uh, a, some sort of an, a, a more favorable settle, uh, settlement other than unconditional surrender, they might have been able to keep Manchukuo as an independent puppet state. Who knows? Maybe it would have been more like Mongolia, this accidental state that its original imperial sponsor never intended to be independent. It was always supposed to be an, a, a puppet state. Uh, but when the original imperial sponsor falls apart, uh, whoa, lo and behold, this state is now independent. Manchukuo easily could have become that, but it didn't. Mongolia did. What an interesting story. Okay, now, you have to understand how Mongolia gets into the Qing Empire. Why does the 20th century Chinese state, the First Republic in 1912, why did they inherit this place called Mongolia? Okay, well, Mongolian history goes back far longer than the Qing Dynasty, of course, but we just want to talk about the proximate history. When the Manchus came out of Manchuria in northeastern East Asian continental heartland, right? Or northeastern China. It feels weird saying China then, because it's not really China they're coming out of, even though it's China today. When they come out of the northeast, okay, they didn't conquer southern China all alone. They had an alliance. They had an alliance of northern Han who lived in the provinces that bordered Manchuria, like Liaoning. All right, they had an alliance of Manchus, northern Han, 
and Mongols, but not just any Mongols. The Mongols were divided up into all kinds of different tribal designations. Okay, it's not just one broad brushstroke of Mongols and they're all the same. They allied only with the Eastern Mongol tribes, those that were closest to Manchuria. All right, and as we know, once this tripartite alliance conquers all of Southern China, they then uh, 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 enshrine privileges for themselves in the institution of the banners. All right, it's the Mongols, the Manchus, and the Northern Han who will serve in the banner system. Okay, uh, this is our first clue to how all of Mongolia, which be, will subsequently become known as Outer Mongolia, falls under the Qing Dynasty orbit. Okay, the Mongols, the Eastern Mongol tribes, were incorporated fully into the Qing ruling family and officials as the bannermen. Every Qing emperor had Manchu, Mongol, and Han blood flowing through their veins. Because they all intermarried and had various concubines. Remember, marriages back then, especially at the highest levels of politics, were all political arrangements. They're all strategic alliances. Love plays zero part whatsoever. Okay? So if you're trying to shore up your alliances with the people who got you where you are today, you're going to intermarry with them. Right? The Kangxi Emperor's grandma was Mongolian. Right? The, Kang the Kangxi Emperor, uh, the first major, long-lived, you know, glorious of the Manchu emperors. Uh, you know, we call him the Manchu Emperor, but his grandmother was 100% Mongolian. All right? And you can find examples of this all throughout the dynasty. So even though they institutionalize the ethnic identity of I'm Manchu and we're Manchu, from a sort of biological, genetic perspective, they were all intermixed. Just like European, just like royalty everywhere is intermixed like that. We just, you know, we marry in strategic alliances with a small pool of candidates who we see as suitable uh, for marriage with us. Remember, you know, if you look into it, all the European royalty, they're all, it's all inbreeding and, you know, uh, marrying among each other and whatnot. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they're more likely to marry a more distant cousin who's in Germany uh, than they are to marry uh, someone who is poor peasant who lives in your own region. Okay, so all Qing emperors are mixed in this sense. The Mongols were privileged, just like the Manchus were, in obtaining government posts particularly in the non-Han regions. Once you get the conquest of places like Tibet, well, Tibet's never really conquered, but once you have Qing influence in Tibet and the conquest of Xinjiang in the far, nor uh, in the far northwest, um, the officials who will be sent to govern these regions will not be Han. These places will be off-limits to Han officials. Okay, they're seen as militarily strategic regions and only Manchus and Mongols will be allowed to serve there. Han officials are not allowed to serve in Xinjiang or in Tibet or in Mongolia. In fact, in Mongolia, once they eventually conquer all of Outer Mongolia, uh, pretty much the only uh, uh, rulers who will be allowed to be stationed there are those of Mongol descent. Okay? Outer Mongolia, like Xinjiang, was not referred to as a province. Okay? It was referred to as a dependency, a fanshu, a little more loose control. Uh, you know, oversight is generally less, and local elites, local non-Han elites, will be allowed to maintain considerable autonomy and, and daily authority in their uh, administrative affairs, so long as there aren't any major uprisings or things like that. Okay. Now, the importance of this alliance with the Mongols, uh, between the Mongols and the Manchus, will lessen. As the Qing military declines in the 19th century and mobile steppe warfare of nomads becomes irrelevant in the industrial age, then the Mongols are not such wonderful allies anymore. 
samurai, almost all the bannermen will be seen as sort of growing increasingly obsolete during the 19th century, Manchu and Mongols alike. Now, the next major development is the encroachment of the Russian and Japanese empires towards Outer Mongolia. The Russians, obviously, sort of from, you know, the northwest, the north, and the northeast, okay? Uh, basically, all the regions of Siberia that butt up against uh, uh, Outer Mongolia, and the Japanese from the east, all right? When they're coming through Korea and then getting a foothold in Manchuria, they're getting closer and closer to Mongolia as well, and they're sending out, you know, political agents and spies to try to gain intelligence for a future takeover of these regions, the Russians start construction of the Trans-Siberian Rail Railway in the 1890s. Uh, then there you have the Chinese Eastern Railway that will pass through Manchuria soon afterwards. The Japanese will eventually get control of that in the 1920s. So in response, the Qing Dynasty, we already saw their response in Manchuria, was to turn all those places into provinces and encourage Han migration to Manchuria. Okay, they will do the same thing. This is all connected. All the borderlands are connected here. They will do the same thing in Outer Mongolia and Inner Mongolia, especially Inner Mongolia because it's so much closer. Now, Inner Mongolia really isn't all that far away from Beijing at all. You can drive there in a day or two. Okay, um, so what you get in the, really it's the last decade of the Qing Dynasty, the first decade of the 20th century from about 1900 to 1910, when you have these new policies, remember the new policies intend to modernize all of the Qing dynasty, all of China along Western lines. They're abolishing the, the old civil service examination system. One of the other things that they're doing is they are encouraging Han migration finally and the sinicization of all the borderlands. And in Inner Mongolia, you get a lot of Han peasants and Han moneylenders who come fast on their heels, who go out to the Mongolian steppe and start lending money to the Mongol elites, the Mongol chiefs, the Mongol religious authorities. And they end up uh, falling into massive debt with these Chinese moneylenders and finding out that their land is being dispossessed by these new wealthy Han migrants who then let Han, you know, poor Han migrants settle on their lands. Oftentimes these settlements fail because you can't really cultivate steppe land until you have the modern chemical fertilizers and whatnot that will allow you to overcome the pre-modern constraints of fragile stepland like nomads had always been on. Okay, so the last decade of the Qing Dynasty, this is when you get a lot of disaffection, a lot of bad blood that starts to rise up between elite Mongol supporters of the Qing Dynasty. Of, yeah, of the Qing Dynasty, sorry. The Mongol chiefs and whatnot who are finding their wealth, their land, their herds being slowly chipped away at by Chinese migrants who are being encouraged by the court to go out there, make sure that we have a claim to Mongolia so Russia doesn't feel like, or Japan doesn't feel like they can take over these lands that easily. So, what happens in 1911 when the October 10 revolution breaks out? The Mongolian chiefs take a look at the situation and they say, this is our chance. This is our chance. And they send a delegation immediately to St. Petersburg, the capital of Imperial Russia. They send a delegation to St. Petersburg asking for help. And they say, we're losing all of our privileges. All of our wealth is being lost to the Han and the Manchus who support Han migration into inner and outer Mongolia. Note the irony here. Many Han revolutionaries will hate the Manchus because they say they're hindering the modernization of China. The Mongols 
are now hating the Manchus for modernizing Mongolia with Han. At least that's the discourse that they would use at the time. They probably didn't see it actually as modernization, but that was the justification for why we're trying to transform Mongolia, the modernization of China, so we can better meet the Western threat. So Russia receives this delegation. They're not thrilled about meddling in Mongolian politics, but they say, you know what? If we don't step in and offer help to the Mongols, then Japan will. They're going to go to the Japanese next. And the Russians and the Japanese are going to be mortal enemies for the first half of the 20th century. Okay, territorial enemies, ideological enemies, all of it. All right, and they're saying if we don't do anything, the, 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 the Japanese are going to end up being their new patron. So Russia gives its conditional support to the Mongols. And says, yeah, we'll stand behind you. If you declare independence, we'll give you moral support. And maybe we'll give you some troops. We don't really know yet. Don't count on that yet. But you have our blessing to go ahead and do this. So on December 1st, 1911, the Mongol chiefs declare independence from the Qing Empire. This is actually the first major crumbling of the Qing dynasty. Remember, the emperor won't actually formally abdicate until February of 1912. In December of 1911, it's still the middle of this civil war between the northern armies and the southern armies. Mongolia is the first to actually break away from the Qing Empire. Okay, So the Mongol chiefs declare independence. Qing officials are forced to leave outer and inner Mongolia. Okay, Even though this is the first... Um, you know, uh, uh, indicator of a disillusion of the Qing Empire. This will not be celebrated by later politicians in China. Okay? You would think so. Hey, how come I've heard about the 1911 revolution, but I've never heard of the, the Mongolians breaking away from China even before the revolution was concluded? How come they get short shrift? Well, here's why. Because it wasn't seen as a revolutionary movement. It wasn't seen as a revolutionary progressive movement. And all later Chinese power holders will be progressive revolutionaries in one form or another, even if they eventually have a, rea- a reaction against that. All right, they're saying, we are undertaking revolution. We're going we're gonna to upend society, reform everything. Okay? And the Mongol secession from China, from the Qing dynasty in 1911, was just an attempt by the Mongol chiefs, the Mongol leaders, the Mongol elites, to hang on to their economic and political privileges that they felt the Manchu and the Han were now imposing upon. It's just disaffected nobles wanting to retain their old feudal privileges. And this does not go over well with the later ideologies of the successive Chinese republics and their leaders in the 20th century. The justification from the Mongol leaders on December 1st, 1911, they said, quote, Originally, Mongolia was not part of China, but because it followed the Qing royal house from the first day, it owes that house a great debt. Mongolia has absolutely no connection at all with China. Consequently, today, when the Qing court has been destroyed, Mongolia has no natural connection with China and should be independent. It's a fascinating language here. Note the, the, the fine distinctions that the Mongols are making. They're saying our loyalty was to the Aizen-Gyoro clan alone. Remember? Prior to nationalism, prior to the 20th century, it's loyalty, individual, personal loyalty to a person, to your sovereign, to your king, to your emperor. It's not abstract collective loyalty to some nation that you can't touch and doesn't actually exist. It's tangible loyalty to that person sitting on the throne over there. Or, and, you know, or his descendants and whatnot. 
And the Mongols are saying, we formed an alliance with the Isinguro clan. Now that clan is being overthrown. And as a result, our compact with you is over. We didn't make an alliance with China. We made an alliance with the Isinguro Manchu clan. And that alliance is now being dissolved. You're turning into a Republic of China. And we have nothing to do with China. That was not the nature of our agreement in the old days. And so we're going to go our own separate way now. All right. Now, the Outer Mongols would not have succeeded without Russian help. This goes without saying. Okay, They would not have been able to break away from China. They did not have the forces or the ability to do so without Russian help. And they wouldn't have done so unless they had tacit uh, indications from the Russians that the Russians would give them moral support and possibly military support. Now, the Mongols, the Outer Mongols, were even more ambitious than we now know. Uh, initially, after they declare independence, they then go and invade Inner Mongolia. Okay, emboldened by their declaration of independence and the support of the Russians, they send 7,000 troops to attack Inner Mongolia. And they even send some troops into parts of Xinjiang, eastern Xinjiang, that border up on Mongolia, on outer Mongolia. They're saying, we're going to create one great Mongol nation like it existed in the old days under Genghis Khan's descendants. And we have Mongols who live in neighboring territories that are now a part of the Qing dynasty. And we're going to, quote unquote, liberate them from Chinese imperialism. All right. Now this fails. Their armies are pushed back, both in Xinjiang and in Inner Mongolia. And eventually, Russia isn't so keen on uh, the Outer Mongols getting more territory than just Outer Mongolia. And Russian envoys end up brokering a deal with the new Chinese president, Yuan Shikai. For Outer Mongolia to remain under Chinese sovereignty, but as a neutral buffer zone, in which the Chinese are not allowed to have too much influence there. You're not allowed to post a lot of officials or have Chinese political institutions that are based in Outer Mongolia. We will formally say on paper, Outer Mongolia still belongs to China. Right? These, 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 these are your fair weather friends, right? The Mongols obviously are going to feel very betrayed here. The, the Russians, uh, you know, they haven't yet violated that, that, that consensus among the foreign powers that we want a united China, but weak. All right. And they, they flirted with the idea. And then they eventually said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. All right. We just want an incredibly weak Chinese authority, practically non-existent. Uh, but we don't want the actual troubles of having to deal with Mongolia and Mongolian administration ourselves. So this sort of you know, nebulous arrangement persists throughout that second decade of the 20th century, from 1911 to 1917 or so. Okay, from 1911 to 1917, this pendulum of Russian support waxing and waning swings back and forth. Sometimes they're belligerent and they say, all right, you guys, we're going to start encouraging you to break away from China completely. And other times they say, whoa, rein them in, rein them in. We're not, we're not going to support you guys' independence. Are you crazy? Why would we do that? You guys can't be your own separate independent nation. And by 1917, the Russians, who are mired in World War I, World War I is not good for the European interest in China. By 1917, the, the, the imperial czarist state is saying, God dang it, we got to wash our hands of our eastern obligations and start to withdraw from Mongolia. We're not going to support that. We're in no position to support their independence against China now. We need China's help. And by 1917, the Russians tell the Mongols, you know what? We want you to accept more Chinese officials to be stationed in the capital of Urga, today's Ulaanbaatar. We want more Chinese officials stationed in Urga, and you know what? We don't think we're really going to ever support you guys to be independent. All this changes with the Russian Civil War that breaks out in 1917. 
The Russian Civil War changes everything. Okay? By the last couple years of the second decade of the 20th century, by 1919-1920, the Russians are completely disengaged. The last czarist chiefs were already saying, you know what, disengage from Mongolia, let, let the Chinese have it, it's too much trouble, we have other concerns. And then as the Russian Civil War rages on, the Chinese warlords in northern China say, holy crap, the Russians can't do anything. Let's take back Mongolia. And the negotiations with the, Mo with the outer Mongols go in favor of the Chinese. The various warlords, the Beijing government, the warlord era, remember? Okay. And China is celebrating. They're, they're, they're celebrating the formal return of, of outer Mongolia to the Chinese Republic in 1919 and 1920. But the chaos of the Russian Civil War will upset everything. Okay? What you have, uh, remember the Russian Civil War will resolve itself, you know, in two or three years in West in the, the western half of the Russian Empire. In the eastern half, it goes on until 1923. Okay? And it's a fight between the whites and the reds, okay? Whites, the royalists, the supporters of the old imperial czar, um, and the reds, Bolsheviks or other uh, proponents of radical ideologies, socialist ideologies of one sort or another, okay? And what's going on now, from about 1919 to 1922 or so, 21, 22, okay, is that white armies are slowly losing the Civil War to the red armies, as we know they're going to lose it entirely eventually. And white armies say need a place to retreat. Where are they going to retreat? Well, they can't retreat into, you know, sovereign states. They'll be forced to lay down their weapons. All right, if they retreat into China, most Chinese officials are going to have to say, sorry, you can't bring the civil war into my territory. Okay? But when they start going into outer Mongolia, they realize there's a vacuum of authority here. The Chinese, even though they claim this land, they can't really enforce their authority here. And white partisans start to see Outer Mongolia as a great place to retreat from red attacks, regroup, and then launch a counterattack from Outer Mongolia. And the most famous man who does this is known as Baron von Ungern Sternberg. He has the best nickname in 20th century history, the Mad Baron. All right, Baron von Ungern Sternberg, a white loyalist, will end up retreating to Mongolia, occupying the capital of Urga, and begin to recruit men and resources for an attack on the Reds. The Reds, the Bolsheviks, tell Beijing, hey, we have our, you know, die-hard mortal enemy in land that you formally claim, that you formally claim. You want Mongolia? You got it! Now you have to deal with the responsibility of this. You can't let our Civil War combatant, a threat to the very existence of our state who's vowed to, to, to destroy our entire existence, you can't let him take refuge in your territory unless you disarm him. You're letting him undertake military recruitment and actions and launch an initiative against us. That is totally unacceptable. You take care of him, you neutralize him, or we will. Several warlords vow to do it, but none of them actually do. See, this is why China loses outer Mongolia. It's because this Russian Civil War overlaps with the Chinese warlord era. And no warlord... They're going to say the right things on paper. They're going to say patriotic sentiments. I'm going, to re I'm going to retake Mongolia for the Chinese nation. Okay, we're going to do the right thing. And many different warlords in the north all say, yes, we're going to take care of Ungern Sternberg and get him out of Mongolia or at least force him to lay down his weapons. But then when they actually think about the process of doing this, each one of them thinks to themselves, if I commit my men and resources to fighting 
the Mad Baron, that's one less troop. That's one less gun and bullet that I have to fight other warlords. And none of them are going to do that. Why would I sacrifice myself for the sake of this abstract nationalist idea of China and then turn around and as a result lose to the next Chinese warlord on the battlefield? And none of them are going to do that. And they don't. So the Reds, the Bolsheviks say, fine, we gave you time to do this and you didn't do it. We're taking matters into our own hands. Summer of 1921. Red armies invade Outer Mongolia. They drive out Baron von Ungern Sternberg. They eventually capture him and execute him. And they decide to stay. They say, you know what? Now that we were forced to go in here to kick out the Reds, we can see some benefits of having a base in Mongolia. This, we always thought it would be a nice sort of neutral buffer zone um, to, uh, you know, between Russia and China. And now that we're actually here and our armies are actually here, why not keep it? And so they uh, 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 sort of maintain their distance for the next couple of years, from 1921 to 1924. You have the ultimate religious and political leader in Mongolia, a man named a, a man by whose title is the Bold Khan. They wait for him to die, okay, before they do anything, because you know so the the embodiment of the old aristocracy is not exactly who the socialist Bolsheviks want to associate themselves with, you know, as a, an emblem of their revolutionary ideology. They wait for him to die. And when he dies in 1924, the Soviets prop up a new leader, someone from, from a, a proper, poor, proletarian background, a herder background, and they prop him up as the new president of a new state, and they formally declare the establishment of the Mongolian People's Republic in 1924. And that is the beginning of Outer Mongolia becoming an independent state. Originally, it was totally a puppet state, just like, Man just like Manchukuo would later be under the Japanese. The only difference is that Russia will not lose a war and that forces them to give up their colonial territories in other people's lands. That's the only difference. Japan will. The Russians won't. And so what happens is that Outer Mongolia, uh, i.e. the Mongolian People's Republic, will be independent on paper. Okay, for the next, what is it, uh, 66, 67 years. It'll be independent on paper. Everyone has to uh, acknowledge this elaborate fiction that Mongolia is its own state with its own autonomy and makes its own decisions. But in reality, they have to you know, deal with their Russian advisors who are pulling the strings of everything, mostly all big decisions that happen in Mongolia. All right, um, this all changes in 1991 when the Soviet Union finally dissolves. When the Soviet Union finally dissolves, Mongolia, which had always been formally independent, but not really independent, is now really independent in practice, too. Now, like, oh my god, it's almost like it's, it, 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 it's an accidental state in that sense. It was always supposed to be a puppet of the Russians. Now, the power, the patron that sponsored Mongolian independence uh, is gone. And Mongolia is truly independent. Uh, so Mongolia has only really been, you know, really independent for the past 30 years or so. Okay. But that is how China lost Mongolia. Pretty Byzantine complex politics, isn't it? The story is not over there. As we'll see in the 1950s and even to today, actually, uh, the nationalists never give up their claim to Mongolia. Ever. Okay. At one point in the 1940s, the nationalists get a promise from the Soviets in which the Soviets say, we'll stop meddling in all of your northern borderlands during the Civil War with the communists as the late 1940s. And in exchange, you recognize the uh, formal independence of Outer Mongolia. And Chiang Kai-shek uh, actually uh, submits to that. And he says, okay, 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 finally, I'll do it. 
I'll acknowledge that. If you stop meddling in Manchuria and Xinjiang and everywhere else in China. And when he finds out very soon that the Russians did not uphold their end of the bargain, he reneges on his pledge and he says, screw it. You didn't do what you said you were going to do, so I'm not doing what I said I'm going to do. We still claim Outer Mongolia. Remember, from the Chinese perspective, they never lost Outer Mongolia. It was taken from them by force by the Russians. And the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek will never acknowledge that Outer Mongolia is now the Mongolian People's Republic. Never! When I was in Taiwan, just, you know, maybe 10 years ago or so, doing dissertation research, I went to a bookstore and I bought a map of China because they still, you know, maintain this insane fiction officially that they have all of China, okay? Uh, the Republic of China. That map includes Outer Mongolia as a sovereign part of the Republic of China. How insane is that? This little state based in Taiwan claiming Outer Mongolia. It's colored in yellow, just like it's a Chinese province. Okay, as we'll learn in a later episode when we talk about the non-Han borderlands during the communist era, it is the Chinese communists. It's Mao Zedong who will formally give Mongolia away. Oh, the irony of that, right? The people in power today who say we're the nationalist defenders of China, we're the ones who never gave an inch to the foreign imperialists, they are actually the only ones who formally agreed to let go the biggest chunk of land that the modern Chinese state ever lost. One-sixth of the land. More on that later. Okay, that's Mongolia. We've knocked out Manchuria. We've knocked out Taiwan. We've, we've knocked out Mongolia. We've got Tibet and Xinjiang left. All right. Tibet doesn't really need a whole lot of introduction. You all know where it is. You all know a lot about it. Cuddly Buddhism, right? Cuddly Dalai Lama. Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, the West loves Tibetan Buddhism. All right. It's much more complicated than that. Um, what we want to understand here is not the West's fascination with Buddhism and the idea that it's this pacifist religion, which it's absolutely not. Right. We want to understand the historical relationship that Tibet had with China, because this is a matter of great controversy today. What is Tibet's historical relationship with China? Okay, usually Tibet has its closest relations with people who are based in the Chinese heartland when the rulers of the Chinese heartland are northern hybrid states, like the Mongols under Genghis Khan's descendants, Kublai Khan during the Yuan Dynasty. Okay, in the 13th century, the late 1200s. These are the guys, remember, who are more aware. They're more strategically concerned with the non-Han periphery because they know these places can be threats. And they're looking for forms of political legitimization and support that go far beyond the Chinese heartland and sort of the Confucian son of heaven ideology. Okay. And the Manchus are in this lineage, this ideological lineage of the Mongols who descended from Genghis Khan. All right? And they say we need several forms of legitimization in order to be seen as the true rulers without peer, without rival throughout the universe. We need three forms of legitimization. We need the Confucian son of heaven legitimization, that we are virtuous. So we got to cultivate a Confucian scholars and officials who acknowledge that and justify the rule of non-Chinese peoples, because they see us as good Confucians. We also need Chinggisid legitimacy. Chinggisid goes the original Mongolian name of Genghis Khan. Genghis is the Persian pronunciation of Chinggis. 
Chinggisid uh, legitimacy means you need to somehow associate yourself with the descendants of Genghis Khan through marriage or through blood. Either you are a distant, you know, great, 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 great grandkid of Genghis Khan, or you married someone who is a blood descendant. Okay? That's how you get Chinggisid legitimacy. Very, very important in the realms of sort of northern Inner Asia, Central Asia, Mongolia, parts of Siberia, Manchuria, parts of Xinjiang. You need to have Chinggisid legitimacy in order for people to see you as a legitimate ruler that they're going to bow down to. But there's also a third form. You need to have Tibetan Buddhist legitimacy. Okay? The Tibetan Buddhists had a lot of sway, a lot of religious clout and authority in the Himalayan regions. Nepal, Bhutan, northern India, parts of Afghanistan, Central Asia, and then into the western provinces of China, what are today the far western regions of Qinghai and Yunnan and Sichuan provinces. That's sort of a Tibetan cultural, religious area of influence. It's much larger than just today's Tibetan autonomous region. Okay, and the northern hybrid states are the ones who go out and seek these sort of relationships because they have entanglements out that are near Tibet. Remember, the Manchus conquered Mongolia. And then as we're going to get to in a minute, they conquered Xinjiang. These places have relationships with Tibet. Xinjiang shares its southern border with Tibet. The Mongols have a religious relationship with the Tibetans. They have a patron-priest relationship. The Mongols adopted Tibetan Buddhism. And there's this corridor that goes through the, 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 the present-day province of Qinghai and Gansu that actually allows Mongol nomads quite easily to, to ride their horses to Lhasa. Okay, it's not that hard, actually. And there was lots of Mongols and Tibetans who went back and forth between Mongolia and Tibet during the Qing Dynasty. And so when the Qing Dynasty is dealing with the Western Mongols, who were fighting the Eastern Mongols, their allies, they eventually realize um, that in order to truly tame, to truly subdue all the Mongols, what we need to do is we need to also have a benevolent relationship with the Tibetans, because the Mongols have a good relationship with the Tibetans. And as they're fighting some of the Western Mongols who are harassing the Eastern Mongols, the Qing allies, some of the Western Mongols flee into Tibet. They flee into Tibet. To Lhasa. They take refuge in Lhasa because they see the Dalai Lama there as their ally, as their patron. So the Manchus say, well, shit, we got to get involved in Tibet too now. Because our Mongol enemies are intertwined with them. All right, so... 1720, you actually get your first military expedition by the Qing Dynasty to Lhasa. And they're trying to drive out what are known as the Jungar Mongols. Jungar Mongols. The Jungar Mongols were a, a confederation of Mongolian tribes, Western Mongolian tribes, uh, who had created their own empire, the Jungar Empire, in much of Western Mongolia and much of Xinjiang and parts of Central Asia. Okay. Um, and the Qing Dynasty gets involved in fighting with them when the Jungars are harassing the, the, the Eastern Mongols, who are their allies. 
And eventually, they send a military expedition all the way to Tibet. They withdraw those troops. They see that it's not in their best interest to keep a contingent of actual soldiers in Lhasa. But you start to get this tradition in which the, 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 the Manchu emperors will say, we have the right to intervene whenever there's political unrest in Tibet. All right, And soldiers, military intervention is rarely a part of the solution, but it does happen from time to time. Most of the time... You will have with the Manchu emperors the same thing that the Tibetans had with the Mongols, a patron-priest relationship. You give us Tibetan Buddhist legitimacy so that we can say that we're a legitimate ruler in this part of the world in which your form of Buddhism holds considerable sway. Okay? The Himalayas, the rooftop of the world, parts of western China that border up onto Tibet. And in return, we'll give you uh, material wealth and support and gifts, and we'll invite you to Beijing. We'll build a, a Tibetan Lama temple in Beijing, and we'll shower you with gifts and affection and buttress your authority back home because we know you have your own domestic rivals who are trying to take you down, and we'll help support you against them. Okay? That's the nature of this patron-priest relationship. You be my priest, I'll be your patron. But it doesn't usually involve military contingents of Qing troops who are stationed in Tibet. Very rarely, in fact. Okay. However, this pendulum of Qing intervention in Tibet culminates in 1792, in which the Qing forced the Tibetans to reform their government, and they impose a new form of a ceremony for the reincarnation of Tibetan uh, lamas, another institution that we don't have time to go into, uh, but this idea in Tibetan Buddhism that the chief spiritual and political leaders, the Tibetan Lama or the Panchen Lama, and there's many other different types of Lamas, uh, get reincarnated. And you have to find his reincarnation in uh, a young boy somewhere in the land after the last one dies. And the one who died will give you clues as to where to find him and whatnot. Okay, lots of room for nepotism, right? (laughs) And subjective ideas about, you know, this is the guy that I want to be the next Dalai Lama because I have influence over his family. So I'm going to make it look like all the clues point to their son and then all of authority as regent over this young boy for the next 20 years. And maybe longer if I can brainwash him. Okay, and the, the Manchu court is saying we need to intervene in this process so that it's not so random and chaotic. Uh, We need to get more control over the process of reincarnation so we can select our own candidates. And what they do in the 1790s is they impose a new reincarnation ceremony that makes use of what's called a golden urn, this golden vessel, in which they say we're going to have a select number, a limited number of candidates, and we're going to put their names on slips, put the slips in this urn, do an elaborate ceremony, and then pull out one slip. And that is who the gods are telling us the next reincarnation of the Dalai or Panchen Lama is supposed to be. Okay. And they even station two imperial residents known in Manchu as the Ambans. They station two Ambans in Lhasa to sort of oversee this ceremony and make sure that it goes according to Beijing's plan. Now, where did this golden urn lottery system come from? An interesting story to that. It actually comes from the Ming Dynasty. The golden urn lottery name slip system was once used during the Ming Dynasty in order to uh, stomp out corruption in the uh, assigning of destinations for people who had passed the civil service examination system and were going out to get jobs in the provinces. Uh, Some jobs are more lucrative and wealthy, and you can get a lot more money, skim it off the top of your career, than in other locations that are much poorer, and these obviously were more coveted locations. 
Um, and so the the Ming emperors, I think this is in the late 16th century, early 17th century, decided to use a new golden urn lottery system in which all the destinations in the empire would be put on, on slips, thrown into the golden urn, and then it's randomly one is pulled out, and that is your destination for the next graduate of the civil service examination system. It's supposed to root out nepotism, right? It's totally random process now. Anyone can get anything. And then that fell by the wayside. It wasn't used. And the Qianlong Emperor in the 1790s says, you know what? Let's revive the golden urn system, but refashion it so that it, it, it is more useful for the reincarnation of lamas in Tibetan Buddhism. Okay. Um, as a footnote, this will eventually fall out of use in the late 19th century as well, as Qing authority in Tibet, you know, uh, again wanes, so again goes on the decline. Uh, but the golden urn ceremony was revived during the communist era. The golden urn ceremony was revived then. Um, and today, we're all waiting for when the current Dalai Lama is going to die. And when he dies, what's going to happen is Beijing is going to carry out is going to bring out that golden urn, and they're going to say this is a long and hollowed tradition that goes back several hundred years. And, and the Tibetans themselves acknowledge that this was a way to uh, d determine who the next reincarnation of the Dalai Lama is. And they're going to put in names on slips of their preferred candidates who are absolutely going to be found from somewhere in China. And they're going to pull it out. They're going to get one of their preferred candidates, and he's going to be the next Dalai Lama, and he'll be totally under Chinese control. And the Chinese will justify the whole system by saying the golden urn has a long pedigree, and the Tibetans themselves agreed to use this, you know, way back over two, three hundred years ago. This guy's a long historical precedent. So remember that, the golden urn. You'll hear about that at some point when the Dalai Lama dies. That's what Beijing's going to use to legitimize their control over the reincarnation process. Um, so as I said, Qing authority in Tibet declines throughout the 19th century from its height in the 1790s as Qing authority declines everywhere and they're beset on all sides by all kinds of uprisings, civil wars, and foreign invasions. And eventually the British take an interest in Tibet because it lies at the furthest extreme of their Indian possessions. And in 1904, Francis' young husband uh, undertakes an invasion. Uh, he, well, he leads a military force that is determined to reach Lhasa. The Tibetans are trying to keep out all outside powers from Lhasa. And the British here force themselves on Lhasa, negotiate trade concessions with the Tibetan authorities, and force them to adopt an informal protectorate status, sort of like what the Japanese will do with Korea before they take over completely. Why are the British doing this? Because they're afraid of the Russians. This is all part of the late 19th century great game competition between Russia and, and the British um, in Central Asia. And Tibet is sort of like the ultimate forbidden prize. And the Russians are always convinced the British are going to take over Tibet. And the British are always concerned that the Russians are going to take over Tibet. Because both of them think that the Qing dynasty authority in Tibet is on the wane. And someone's going to have to take over it because it's not going to be independent. Uh, it needs a patron and it's going to be me. But no, the Qing dynasty comes back and they say, whoa, in response to the British, they say, we got to do something. And they send their own military force to Lhasa in 1910. Lots of bloodshed ensues. And then in the 1911 revolution, the Tibetans decide, here's their opportunity, just like the Mongols, and they kick the, the Qing dynasty Ambans and the military authorities out of Lhasa. And then we have a period of about 37 years in which no one's really in control of Tibet other than Tibetans. What a, what a novel development, right? Britain will be the preeminent protector, quote-unquote protector, patron of Tibet during this time period. Okay? 
Britain makes sure that the Russians don't get Tibet. They make sure that the Chinese never fully recover Tibet, even though the Chinese will never give up their claim to having full sovereignty over Tibet. Okay, uh, but Britain will also never go so far as to say we're going to actually support Tibetan independence or we're going to make it a part of the British Empire. Okay, they said, no, 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 our interests with China, our relationship with China is too important to ruin over Tibet. We've heard that today, right? Most countries say the exact same thing. We're not going to do shit for Tibet because the economic relationship with China is more important than anything that we can hope to get from having a good relationship with Tibet. Tibet, you know, a frozen wasteland, fairly poor, not a whole lot to offer the rest of the world. Okay? And the Chinese want it mainly for territorial and nationalist pride. There's not a whole lot of resources or, you know, economic profits you're going to get out of Tibet. Okay? Um... What about the Tibetans themselves from 1912 to 1949? They largely rule themselves and they get involved with politics, the warlord politics of neighboring Chinese warlords on the fringes of the Tibetan world in western, you know, Qinghai, western Sichuan, western Yunnan. Okay, the Dalai Lama in 1912 says that the relationship between China and Tibet has been one of patron and priest and it was not based on the subordination of one to the other. Therefore, he's trying to set the grounds for future independence, but he knows that if he declares dependence, the independence is pointless unless some great powers of the world will recognize your independence and be willing to fight for you, or you have to be willing to fight for yourself. Tibet can't raise the army it needs to defend itself if outer you know, armies of a great power invade it, so it knows it needs a patron. None of these patrons are really willing to support it because they don't want to anger China too much but they'd like it to be a little bit separate and weak, and they don't necessarily want the Chinese to have it. Okay, so Tibet will exist in this nebulous no-man's land for the next four decades, trying to keep everyone at bay. And ultimately, it's not going to happen. Ultimately, they're, they're in a race with time, and they're going to lose that time. What about Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists when they take over? Um, in 1928, after 17 years or so, basically Tibetan independence, more or less, de facto autonomy. Okay. Um, in 1928, the Nationalists come to power, right? The Nanjing decade, 1927 to 1937. The Nationalists are way too weak to take over Tibet or to intervene. Uh, they, 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 they claim Tibet on paper. They say this is, a, this is a part of the last empire. We have succeeded that empire, so therefore Tibet belongs to us as well. Uh, what they usually use Tibet for is they use Tibet as a convenient excuse to position their own nationalist officers, officials, and soldiers in warlord regions that are on the fringes of Tibet. Here's what they'll do. They'll say, okay, the Dalai Lama just died. You're going to have a reincarnation ceremony or the Panchen Lama. We need to oversee that ceremony. We're allowed to do that, right? Chinese officials, Qing officials oversaw these ceremonies before. You can at least allow us to do that, right? We're not going to send a military there, but we're going to send a representative to Lhasa to oversee the ceremony. Why can't we do that? The British send a representative, and the Tibetans agree. So while they're doing that, they use that excuse. Oh, we're going to do a, something good for the Chinese nation. We're, we're going to you know, re, uh, uh, help ensure that we still have control over Tibet by overseeing this ceremony. Surely the warlords who are, you know, have their own autonomous power separate from the Nationalist Party, surely the warlords in Yunnan, Sichuan, and Qinghai will let us fly into their airports and, and, and leave some of our officials and maybe a small contingent of soldiers here to help oversee this process. Okay, and that's mainly what the Nationalists will be doing. They'll use the Tibet issue as a pretext 
to chip away at the authority of the warlords that are located between Inner China and Tibet itself. Okay? Um, but basically, Tibet is more or less independent. Not on paper, but in substance, it is independent more or less from 1912 to 1949. Okay? Next chapter of that story, a very tumultuous one, will be treated in a later episode when we talk about Tibet during the 1950s. Finally, Xinjiang. Here we are. The last major borderland. Okay? The last major borderland. Let's talk about Xinjiang in the modern era. Now, Xinjiang is an area that sometimes I have a hard time talking about because I'm so deep in the trenches. All right? If you know anything about me, you know that I wrote a book on Xinjiang. Right? I actually wrote an entire book. This is what my dissertation was on, and I turned it into a book uh, all about Chinese rule in Xinjiang during the 20th century. And sometimes when you're so close to a topic, it can actually be hard to explain it clearly without getting bogged down in too many details. Uh, but I'm going to see what we can do. I'm going to see what we can do. Okay, what I love about Xinjiang, what's so interesting to me about Xinjiang, why I find it so fascinating is that in the 20th century, after you lose Mongolia, after you lose Tibet, even if it's only lost, you know, um, uh, in theory sometimes and not actually on paper, uh, nevertheless, Chinese authority will be eradicated to one degree or another in every other majority non-Han region of the old Qing Empire. Okay, in those regions that have a, a, an overwhelming majority of the population that is not Han, only Xinjiang will be retained by the Chinese state. Only Xinjiang will continue to have an unbroken succession of Han governors and Han officials who rule over these non-Han peoples who have the potential to create a new independent state, but they don't actually end up doing so. Okay? So it's a fascinating laboratory, a fascinating case study in which we see how did the Chinese continue to hold on to and justify the retention of their culturally alien political power in a land in which the people did not look like them, eat like them, speak like them, worship like them, dress like them, anything. In the 20th century, that's a recipe for national determination. That's a recipe for a nationalist movement that results in the creation of a new separate state. How are the Chinese going to deal with this threat? Xinjiang is the only land where we get to see this happen. All right, Xinjiang, for those of you who don't know, far off in the northwestern part of China, one-sixth of the territory of today's people, pe pe People's Republic of China, uh, dominated in the south. Uh, the whole province is bisected in the middle uh, from west to east by the Tianshan Mountains, the heavenly mountain range. Uh, to the south is the forbidding Taklamakan Desert, this enormous desert. And all around the desert are these oases, Kashgar, Khotan, Yarkand, Kucha. Uh, you know, these are all oases uh, in which today we would say the people living there are called Uyghurs. Okay? Turkic-speaking Muslims. In the north are oftentimes high grassland areas where you find uh, Kazakhs, a lot of Kazakhs, nomads. Uh, in other parts of the province, you'll find Kyrgyz nomads. Okay, and then there's also significant populations of Chinese Muslims known as Hui, and then a small population of Han. Okay, the administration in the 20th century will be entirely Han for the most part. All right, we're getting ahead of, we're getting ahead of ourselves. How did Xinjiang come onto the map? of the Qing Empire. Why did they have this land? Okay. It was conquered as a collateral, unwanted, unintended territorial prize of the destruction of the Jungar Mongols. In order to protect their Eastern Mongol allies, the, uh, the, the, the Manchu emperors, 
proceeded to follow the Jungars to their other domain in Xinjiang, defeated them in Xinjiang, and then named it Xinjiang. This is all happening in the 1750s. They name it Xinjiang, New Territory. That's what Xinjiang means. In the 1750s, and then the Jungars continue to flee to Tibet, and the Manchu armies continue to pursue them to Tibet as well. You can see how Tibet, Mongolia, and Xinjiang are all intertwined, right? Now, as with Tibet and Mongolia, once they conquer this land that they really didn't want, once they conquer Xinjiang, they say it's going to be off-limits to Han migration. Okay, let's let, you know, the indigenous peoples, the Muslims, the Mongols, the Kyrgyz, the Tajiks, the Hui, uh, they will be ruled by their own community leaders, and the only other outsiders who are going to be sent to this province are going to be Manchu and Mongol military officials. No Han officials. And for about 120 years or so, 1756, the initial conquest, to 1878, Xinjiang is nothing but trouble for the Qing dynasty. They're probably wishing they never had it. Okay, they're just, they're, they're just there to make sure that no one else fills what would become a vacuum of power from their perspective. There are constant invasions from Central Asia, from the area called Khotan, from the Fergana Valley, present-day Uzbekistan. You have people who have religious, economic, cultural ties that span that border, and they continually will send people in to try to kick out the Manchus and the Mongol military officials from Xinjiang. Okay, Xinjiang is incredibly expensive. You have to maintain a military presence there, but it's not really wealthy enough, and you don't have the means to extract natural resources to, like today when you can get oil out of the region. Back then, you weren't interested in oil, and you couldn't get it anyways. So the province needs a lot of those xieixiang, those shared funds from the wealthy interior provinces. Okay, and you're constantly beating off invasions from Central Asia, co-brethren in Central Asia, co-religionists from Central Asia, who see you as infidels and try to kick you out. And then finally, this all reaches a crescendo in 1864 when a uh, Kokand general named, known as Yakub Beg invades Xinjiang and, and kicks out the Manchus um, and Mongols and founds an independent state for 13 years. It's going to last till 1878, uh, 1877, 1864 to 1877. Yakub Beg will rule over a small, precarious, and yet undeniably independent Muslim state. He'll even try to, he'll even send out overtures to the Ottoman Empire, the Sultan in the Ottoman Empire, to try to gain moral support from them as a fellow Muslim state. Okay. Uh, the Chinese, I mean, the Qing Dynasty, uh, in order to reconquer Xinjiang, uh, gives its approval to those inner Chinese armies from Hunan, uh, Zhou Zongtang, all right, Zhang Guofan, who raised their own armies, and they go out and they suppress the Taiping Rebellion, they suppress the Muslim rebellions in Gansu, and then they continue, and by 1878, they have reconquered Xinjiang. After they reconquer Xinjiang in 1878, they do the exact same thing that they're doing with Manchuria and with Taiwan. And they say, let's turn it into a province and encourage Han migration. Uh, instead of Manchu and, Mo and Mongol mi military officials, we're going to send in Confucian Han officials. And we're going to sinify this region. We're going to sinicize it. And for the last couple decades of the Qing dynasty, Xinjiang is being actively sinicized. All these efforts mostly fail. They will set up Confucian schools, uh, peddle Confucian texts, try to uh, teach the local Muslims to read in Chinese. Uh, but their ability to do this is constrained, especially after the Boxer War in 1901 and the Boxer Indemnity. Uh, the shared funds dry up, and Xinjiang has this uh, maybe 5% total of the population is perhaps Han, mostly officials in the bureaucracy, but they have almost no money. 
to run this province, um, and they see that it's a place that they could easily lose, that it could easily lose. And some people there are saying, you know what, these attempts to colonize Xinjiang, to sanify it, to send in Han migrants, Chinese officials, maybe this was a big mistake. If we don't have uh, full financial and military backing from a strong central government like Beijing, I don't know if we can actually do this in Xinjiang. It might all blow up in our face. And then the 1911 revolution breaks out. The 1911 revolution breaks out. And Xinjiang becomes, as I said, the only remaining majority non-Han land to remain under continuous, unbroken Chinese rule. Now, who's in power? A man by the name of Yang Zhenxin, a proper Confucian scholar. Okay, he takes over the governorship of Xinjiang in 1912. And he says, we have a very weak position here. We occupy only 5% of the population. 95% of this population is not Han. We have no central government support, no money, no hope of military support, allies. They don't sell us bullets. They don't send us troops, nothing whatsoever. And we have significant Russian meddling because we are right up, uh, uh, we run up right against the Russian border. So what am I going to do? I can't transform Xinjiang. I can't sinicize it. There's no way. The people will revolt and I have no support. But the Russians are going to try and take over the, 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 the province as well. So what's his response? He says, let's shut down Xinjiang to the outside world. Close the borders. Quarantine the province. Construct a little bubble around it. Don't let any outsiders in. Don't let any more Han migrants in. Kick out carpetbagging officials who come from the inner provinces. And recruit a seasonal military from the local populace that doesn't make it look like I'm imposing Han violence on non-Han peoples. And then he tells Beijing... During the warlord era, you need to let me rule Xinjiang differently. Okay? If you don't let me rule Xinjiang in accordance with special conditions, it's going to go the way of Outer Mongolia. He has a wonderful phrase for this. It will become Waimeng Jishu, the next Outer Mongolia. He's saying, you need to let me rule as I see fit here. And then as I see fit means to shut down the province. And if you let me do that, close the borders then I'll be able to retain this as Chinese territory, even if the central government has almost no actual control of the region. I'm loyal. I won't secede. Don't worry. And Yang Zhenxin stays in power for 16 years. Incredible. 1912 to 1928. And in the 1920s, he starts to see a new threat. He says, you know what I'm seeing? It's something he says, I see this thing called a great Muslim unity. There's a tide of self-government call for self-government that rises day by day. He's talking about nationalism. He sees nationalism, this idea that people should rule themselves and not be ruled by culturally alien outsiders. That's a new idea, remember? That you're loyal to a nation, not to a person. That's a very new idea for the 20th century. And Yang Zhenxin says, this idea, although many people think it's progressive, does not bode well for us because <laughs> we are outsiders. We are outsiders. And these calls for nationalism, for self-government, so where we, uh, Muslims rule over Muslims, Kazakhs rule over Kazakhs, it's not something that machine guns or artillery can stop. And so he has this wonderful little phrase in which he says, we need to make sure that the indirect rule of the Han is vastly superior to the direct rule of the Uyghurs. Only he didn't call them Uyghurs because that wasn't the term that was used back then. They called them Chanto or Chanzu, turbans or turban heads, referring to, you know, the headgear, 
that was worn by many Muslim peoples. Okay. And he says, we need to make sure that we are, that we implement good, virtuous Confucian government. And if we do that, I'm convinced they won't care who's in power. They won't care what the ethnicity, the race, the language of the person in power is. All, all most people want is good government. And bad government by someone who looks like me, speaks like me, eats like me, is still bad government. And Yang Zhenxin says, indirect rule of the Han, we can still be superior to direct rule by the Uyghurs. Okay? But then he faces a new threat. And he sees the walls closing in around him. And he's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to manage all of this. When the Bolsheviks win the Russian Civil War, they set up the Soviet Union. All right? A very radical, progressive ideology that aims to liberate both nations and the downtrodden economic classes of the world from their oppressors. And he looks over at Central Asia, which borders Xinjiang, and he says, Oh Lord, look what the Soviets are doing. They've set up numerous national republics that in theory are independent. They gave the Kyrgyz their own Kyrgyzstan. They gave the Tajiks their own Tajikistan. They gave the Turkmens, Turkmenistan, the Kazakhs, Kazakhstan, the Uzbeks, Uzbekistan. And they sponsor the Mongols for the Mongolian People's Republic. You see what's going on here? The Soviet Union is an affirmative action empire. They are justifying the continuance of Russian rule by saying it's not imperialist Russian rule, it's progressive socialist ideology, and we're sponsoring the liberation of nations and allowing them to have their own state. Formally, the Soviet Union is a, is, is a federation. It's not a republic. The Kazakhstan was known as the Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic, an actual independent republic. Now, on paper, Kazakhstan could secede from the Soviet Union, just like Mongolia on paper was independent. In reality, there's no way the Soviets would let them do that until 1991 comes around and they all finally secede and you say, you know, see, we, they dare Moscow to intervene and Moscow doesn't and there are all these accidental states are born. Right? But that's how you justify. That's Soviet affirmative action. You justify the retention of formerly imperialist feudal empires by saying, we're liberating you under the umbrella of a new progressive multi-ethnic diverse state. And we're letting you rule yourself. Kyrgyz will rule, will, will, will rule over Kyrgyz in Kyrgyzstan. And the same in Kazakhstan, Mongolia, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, there'll be a lot of Russian advisors. You might, you know, encourage Russian migration. But this is just to help you modernize and create all the institutions of a modern nation that every single state needs. Okay? We're your fraternal brothers. We're your friends. We're your advisors. We're not going to assimilate you, though. And they don't. They maintain these identities. Now, I'm, I tell you all this because, not because Yang Zhenxin was going to counter this threat. He really didn't. He saw it and he said, I'm not going to do that. There's no way I'm sponsoring nationalism among the Uyghurs because I can't keep them in check if they really want independence. I have no military means to do that. But later on in the 20th century, this legacy of affirmative action empire, giving the appearance, the forms of nationhood of independence without actually letting people be independent, you're playing with fire there. But it becomes the new model for how you retain old colonies in a new progressive guise. Okay? The Soviets will provide the model for the Chinese. And when the communists take over, they will import and adapt. They'll change it. They will adapt the Soviet affirmative action model in very important ways. In very important ways. Yang Zhenxin saw this. 
in one of my favorite documents that he wrote at the time, 1924. He's talking about how, you know, the Kazakhs and the Kyrgyz over in the Soviet Union, they have a new swagger, all right? They have a new pride because they feel like they're independent to a certain extent. The Russians are letting them be independent. Not really, but on paper, it looks like it. And he says, why are the Russians doing this? Why are the Russians doing this? And he has this wonderful phrase in classical Chinese. He says, quote, qi shi yobunang, qi shi, their position. In their position, yobunang, there are things you cannot do. He's talking about the 20th century, in which in the old days, you wanted to take over a rival's territory? You went to war. And you said, he's sinned against God, he's insulted my lineage, my grandfather, whatever. And you went to war, even if the true reason was for economic reasons or something else. Okay, in the 20th century, you have to create an elaborate pretext to go to war. And that pretext has to be related to liberating oppressed nations from their oppressors. That's what the Japanese do in Manchukuo. We're liberating the Manchus from oppressive Chinese rule. That's what the Russians did in Mongolia. We're liberating the Mongols from oppressive imperialistic Chinese. The British in Tibet. Oh, we're protecting the Tibetans from imperialist Chinese. That's what the United States did in Iraq. We are liberating the poor, oppressed Iraqis from their uh, fanatical authoritarian rulers like Saddam Hussein. Everyone does this. You have to justify war and aggression by reference to nationalism and liberation of nations. And of course, we do it opportunistically and whenever it's useful to us and we criticize other people when they do it, but we all do it. It begins here. The Chinese are seeing it. Yang Zhenxin is seeing this in 1924. And he's saying, this is why the Soviets are creating the affirmative action empire. Because in their position, there are certain things you can't do. You cannot just go in and impose your rule over the Kazakhs and say, we're good for you. Russians are a superior race. We're good for you. And we're going to rule over this land because it's useful to us. No. You have to justify everything in terms of we're liberating and developing and sponsoring your new nationhood. Self-rule, national determination, and liberating you from some oppressor. Okay, Yang Zhenxin sees this. He has no solution for it, but he sees it. 1928, Yang Zhenxin is killed. Okay, Yang Zhenxin is killed. And new warlords come to power. He's killed, he's, he's assassinated at a wedding, ba- uh, not a wedding banquet, a graduation ceremony. Okay, he's assassinated. And a new, a new Confucian official takes his place, Jin Shuren. For five years, Jin Shuren says, holy shit, the warlords of inner China are finally coming to Xinjiang. They've, bro- they've broken through our little quarantine bubble. And he says, I need to raise an army. Yang Zhenxin never really raised a decent army because he knew it would destabilize the province. Well, his province is already destabilized. Yang Zhenxin's coffin is all the evidence we need of that. He's dead because he didn't have an army to fight other warlords. I need an army now to protect, to protect myself. He raises an army. He dispossesses some Muslim peasants of their land in Hami. He, 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 he devotes like 80% of the, the provincial budget to the military, conscripts people, imposes new tax to pay for this, encroaches on the privilege of the non-Han elites. And predictably, they all rebel. And they drive him out of the country. And then finally, you get the new warlord, Sheng Shitsai, comes to power in 1933. He was trained in Japan. He's not an old Confucian official. He was trained with a modern Western education in Japan. And he comes in, and he's receptive to the Soviet affirmative action. He says, I like what the Soviets are doing. 
that's how we're going to retain Xinjiang. That's how we're going to retain Han rule in a non-Han land in the era of national determination that says that such rule is illegitimate. Here's how we do it. And he, he imports Soviet affirmative action and a, a Stalinist police state to make sure that nothing goes wrong with Soviet affirmative action. He says, we're no longer going to call the Uyghurs turban heads. We're going to call them Uyghurs. We're going to have a progressive name, an old Uyghur empire from the Tang Dynasty era from a thousand years ago. You guys take a lot of pride in that. We're going to revive that name and apply it to the new ethnic group. We're going to be more respectful of you. We're going to print money that has Uyghur script on it and Chinese script, bilingual stuff. He creates ethnocultural advancement societies that publish uh, magazines and newspapers in non-Chinese languages. Unprecedented. And he incorporates into power, he brings into power non-Han officials to share power with him. He has a co-governor of the province, I mean a vice-governor of the province, who is a Uyghur. Unprecedented. And then he decides after a few years of this, 1937, these guys are getting too close to me. I've consolidated my power. I've convinced everyone that I'm different, that I'm an enlightened Han. I'm not a, fe a feudal, backward, oppressive Han. And he starts rounding up and killing all of the people that he brought into power <laughs> to sort of forge that consensus. He takes advantage of the Stalinist purges in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, says, I'm going to do the exact same thing now. And he kills many of the people he brought into power. He would normally be overthrown here. But he also imported a Stalinist police state and the Soviets support him. And they give him military and financial backing. And he is able to continue his rule over Xinjiang uh, for another seven years. Okay. And then finally, Sheng Shitsai gets tired of the Soviets. And when they're mired down in the Battle of Stalingrad in 1942, he shifts to the nationalists who have now retreated to the wartime capital of Chongqing and throws in his lot with the Nationalist Party and says, save me from the Soviets. Chiang Kai-shek saves Sheng Shitsai from the Soviets by kicking him out of the province and sending in his own new governor, Wu Zhongxing, who says, I'm going to implement a Confucian civilizing project in Xinjiang. We're going to make Xinjiang Chinese. We're going to sinicize it the way we should have sinicized it 50 years ago. But we were too weak to do so. Now we're going to do it for real. Only problem, you're still too weak to do so. And this initiates a response from the Soviets who say, fine, you're going to kick out Sheng Shitsai, the guy that we thought was our puppet Han. You're going to repudiate Soviet affirmative action policies, then we're going to sponsor an uprising within Xinjiang. And we're going to portray it as a national liberation movement. And in 1944, they give support and military aid and soldiers to what they refer to as the East Turkestan Republic. And they cut off three districts in the northern part of Xinjiang. And they declare their independence as the East Turkestan Republic. And they say, we're not behind this. We're just giving moral support to the legitimate grievances of Uyghurs and Kazakhs in Xinjiang who say they're being oppressed and exploited by imperialistic Chinese. Sorry. <laughs> okay. And so the Chinese Chiang Kai-shek responds. He says, all right, they're, they're sponsoring an insurgency, a native insur insurgency against the Chinese. What do we do in response? What does Chiang Kai-shek do? He ups the ante even further. This is all affirmative action bluffing game that's going on here in the 1940s. Chiang Kai-shek says, fine, we're going to get rid of Han governors, and we're going to appoint our first ever Uyghur governor. And he appoints Masud Sabri, a Uyghur, a Uyghur intellectual, a Uyghur politician, as the first ever non-Han governor of any province in the 20th century. 
the Los Angeles Times reports on this. They hear about it and they go, holy crap, look what the Chinese are doing. How progressive, how enlightened. And the Soviets come back and they say, God damn it, that was a good move. And then this stalemate continues until the end of the Civil War. Both sides have engaged in a bluffing match of ethno-political inflation. How much autonomy, how, many, how much substance of real, actual, non-Han self-rule are we willing to give the native inhabitants of Xinjiang? Neither one is willing to give, grant them full independence. That's never supposed to happen. But this is the legacy that will be left for the Chinese communists in Xinjiang after 1949. Okay? Because now... All those Uyghurs and Kazakhs and Hui and Mongols who were given a real measure of some sort of power in the 1940s. They were being used, of course, to try to portray their Soviet or Chinese sponsors as enlightened progressive rulers. But nonetheless, the reality was they got some real power for a while. And if you weren't ever intending to give them true independence, you're going to have a hard time telling them. That's not going to happen, buddy. And it's going to be the communists. It's going to fall to the communists to tell them, no independence for you. Not only is there no independence for you, there's also not even going to be the pretense of independence like they got in the Soviet Union. You're not even going to be a, a republic. We're going to create autonomous regions. I'm getting ahead of myself now. At the same time I'm doing this, I also have a line from Seinfeld. I haven't used a Seinfeld reference in ages, have I? Uh, I'm thinking of the soup Nazi episode. No soup for you. <laughs> no independence for you. No republics for you. It's not happening. Anyways, that's a later episode. We're going to deal with that. What happens in the 1950s in Tibet and Xinjiang? The only two non-Han lands that are going to be ruled and claimed by the Chinese communist state. If you don't want to wait for that episode, or if you want all these details and so much more, uh, you know, greater description, uh, you can read my book. All right. Xinjiang and the Modern Chinese State. It came out in 2016. I feel a little dirty and gross plugging my own books and whatnot. Uh, but whenever I do that, I think back to uh, a talk I once attended when I lived in Seattle. And my dad and I went to Everett where Rick Steves, <laughs> travel guru Rick Steves, uh, had, had, had his, his company headquarters. And he used to give free talks. And he'd tell us all about, you know, this is how you travel through Italy. This is how you travel through Germany and whatnot. And he'd give you all these great tips and everything. And the talk was totally free. And at the end of the talk, he would say, uh, by the way, my books are for sale. You know, this is for sale. Feel, you know, I, I, I hope you guys will go out and buy my stuff. <laughs> and he even justified it. He says, uh, why do I feel okay that I can uh, uh, promote my own books here and whatnot? Because I just gave you a free talk. You all just got free, valuable stuff. You don't have to buy my guidebook anymore. So I feel totally okay, uh, uh, you know, promoting my own stuff now. Uh, anyways, so I'll take a page out of Rick Steves' playbook here and say, hey, this whole podcast is free for the vast majority of you. Um, so anyways, if you're interested, my book's out there. If you don't want to pay any money, get it from the library. It's available in the library. Uh, Xinjiang is a fascinating place. It really is. All right, next time. One more periphery, but it's not a non-Han one. What happened to Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists after they lost the Civil War? For the answer, join me next time for the History of Taiwan in episode 36 of Beyond Huaxia. Yeah.